Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. We're super excited to share today's episode with you. Our interview was with Dan McClellan, a Bible scholar who began sharing his insights and scholarship on TikTok in 2021 and immediately began racking up millions of views and hundreds of thousands of followers. One of the reasons that people seem to resonate with Dan's content is that he makes traditionally difficult and obscure topics extremely accessible. If you watch any of his videos, you'll see what we mean. But even those who are pretty unfamiliar with the worlds of the Old or New Testaments will be able to immediately gain helpful and fascinating new understandings from Dan's videos. In our interview, Dan shares a bit about the story about how he got started, including that one of the reasons he began sharing content on social media was that he saw that people would use outdated or incorrect assumptions about the Bible or the interpretation of the scripture generally to justify power dynamics that place themselves at the top. Dan believes that scripture should never be weaponized and that good scholarship can help us understand how to use scripture in a healthier way. For those that wonder why we might want to learn about the details of the Bible, if we primarily want to engage it devotionally, Dan has a really intriguing answer. The more that we learn, the more foreign that we realize the Bible is, and the more uncomfortable we'll become. And the more uncomfortable we are, the more we're forced to grapple with the problems and contradictions, something that we've found can be a truly meaningful struggle that takes one further up and further into a life of deep faith. Dan received his bachelor's degree from BYU in ancient Near Eastern studies, and then received a master's in Jewish studies at the University of Oxford, a master's in biblical studies in 2013, and a PhD in religion and religious studies from the University of Exeter. From 2013 to 2023, Dan worked as a scripture translation supervisor for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Salt Lake City, before leaving to focus on creating more original audio and video content. You can find Dan's TikTok channel at at McClellan, spelled on that format, M-A-K-L-E-L-A-N, or check out his brand new podcast, Data Over Dogma, on all major podcast platforms. As always, we can't wait to share this episode with you, and we really hope that you enjoy it. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us on the yeah. podcast. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Um, I guess, I mean, we have so many questions for you, but let me just ask you to start out. Did When you started when you started posting to TikTok, mm-hmm. let's say, did you, ex- did you ever expect that there would be such wide interest in the things that you're going to be talking about? I knew the, the topics were being discussed pretty widely on TikTok. I had seen um, videos being posted on Twitter and, and Facebook and Instagram. So I knew that religion and the Bible were hot topics there. But no, I, I didn't have any idea that it was going to uh, grow in popularity so quickly. I'm glad that it did. It was a little nerve wracking at first. I don't, uh, you know, from somebody just recording some videos on my phone, I never like seeing myself on video right. to begin oh, with. I know but, the feeling, yeah. but now I'm putting these videos out into the universe and um, to have. I had a video that had about 4 million views in a matter of a couple of days pretty early on. And it was kind of nerve wracking to see the views keep climbing and climbing and climbing and and then the followers uh, coming in very, very rapidly because now suddenly I'm, you know, just doing my own thing in my house. But now it feels like I've got (laughs) thousands and thousands of eyes on me. And so it was pretty nerve wracking, a little bit exciting as well. Um, I got used to it after a little bit, but yeah, I could never have predicted that it would have um, attracted so much attention so quickly. Yeah. And I remember the topic of that first video, the one that got so much attention. So that was, that was the one on, um, uh, where I was responding to a creator who was acting frustrated at a, uh, an article headline, uh, that said God's wife edited out of the Bible almost. And this was an interview with Francesca Stavrakopoulou, who was my dissertation supervisor, oh, wow. who I'm very good friends with. And, uh, her perspective is very much the academic consensus that there was a, a time in ancient Israelite history where it was normative to, worship the God of Israel as someone who had a consort, a partner, a wife. Mm. Um, and so, wow. yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty short video. I still, I was in my shirt and tie. Normally I'm, I'm <laughs> right. dressed a little more relaxed than that, but, uh, but I responded to that and it, it got a lot of attention. So that was, wow. wow. Yeah. And I've, I've reposted it since. And I think it got a million views the second the time second I posted it as well. That's yeah. incredible. Which was pretty crazy. But wow. a lot of people are interested in hearing about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, th- that's that actually 
brings up a, a, a point and a question that I wanted to ask sort of right off the bat, which is mm-hmm. as we sort of, as Latter-day Saints transition into the New Testament in Sunday school this year, I want to, I, I would love for you to like sort of set the stage theologically for the world that Jesus was, was living in specifically, like what, you know, what gods were worshiped in ancient Israel? Like who was Jehovah, mm-hmm. you know, to, to these people and how did that, that deity fit into potentially a broader landscape? So that's um, that can get really complex really yeah. quickly, but but things <laughs> you got thirty seconds. <laughs> <laughs> but, but things changed over time. So if we go into the pre-exilic period, we have uh, Jehovah. What does that mean? Pre, pre, pre- so around six hundred BC, uh, uh, this is where Latter Day Saints see Lehi leaving Jerusalem, right. coming over to the New World okay. to escape the Babylonian captivity, the exile, which lasts until about uh, five thirty nine BCE, is when. Um, Cyrus the Great conquers Babylon and later on allows the Judahites to return to their land. So okay. that's the exile right there. So when we say pre-exilic, it's basically everything before 600 BCE. Okay. Um, and then post-exilic will be everything from around 539 BCE until around the end of the 4th century BCE, which is where we have the Hellenistic or the Greco-Roman period. So. Okay. In the pre-exilic period, Jehovah would have been considered the uh, god of gods, the king of the gods, the head of the divine council. But every nation had its own deity. And so you have some references to this idea. Uh, Chemosh is the deity in Moab. Milcom is the deity in Ammon. Uh, Asherah or um, Ashtoreth is the deity in Phoenicia. And you have uh, references to these deities in not favorable ways, but they don't challenge their existence. And then Baal is another Northwest Semitic storm deity that is in Phoenicia, but also in the land of Canaan. And the reason Baal and Jehovah get into it so much, particularly with Elijah and the priests of Baal, for instance, is because Baal is another Northwest Semitic storm deity. And that's the divine profile that Jehovah has. So they're basically both trying to fill the same role in the same region. And so- Oh my gosh, I did not know that. And so that's why in the contest between Elijah and the priests of Baal is who can call down lightning to light the sacrifice, which is a feature of the storm deity. And it's basically who's in charge of the weather in this region. And so when um, Baal is unable to light the sacrifice and then Jehovah is able to light it, everybody says, um, Adonai, who Elohim, he is the deity. Yeah. Um, now, when you get into the exilic period, a problem that the Judahites in exile have to face is that they're outside of the land of Israel, the inheritance of Jehovah. And one of the features of that pre-exilic worldview is that each deity is only sovereign within their own nation. And so they're outside their nation. And so they owe allegiance to the deity of whatever nation they're in. And you have you have forays into other nations by deities and they'll conquer and, and stuff like that. But for the most part, your deity can only be worshipped on their own soil. And so, for instance, when you have Naaman the Syrian comes down in First Kings and um, you know dips seven times in the Jordan and is healed, he wants to worship Jehovah back in Syria. And so what does he do? He takes two cartloads of Israelite soil with him so that he can just take a piece of Israel and relocate it. And you have David when Saul is pursuing him. They're getting close. They're in the wilderness of Zin. They're getting close to the borders of Israel. And David is upset and and they're on opposite ends of a valley and on the mountains yelling back and forth at each other. And David says that um, your men are telling me to go worship other gods by forcing me out of Jehovah's inheritance. The idea wow. being, if yeah. I'm outside of Israel, I cannot worship Jehovah. I have to worship the other deities. So the Judahites now have Jehovah back in Israel. How are they going to worship him? And uh, in Daniel, you have Daniel is praying towards Jerusalem yeah. and to kind of signal that's where the deity is. That's where I would like to be. Um, and in Psalm 82, as I've argued in a couple of publications, uh, this is where you get kind of the universalization of Jehovah, where um, we we see Psalm 82, primarily Jesus quotes it in, in John 10, but what's going on there is uh, the God of Israel is basically putting the gods of the nations on trial because they allowed the exile to happen, which is a violation of the sovereignty of, of uh, the God of Israel. And so condemns them to mortality, basically deposes them, kicks them out of the divine council. And then the psalmist in the very last verse says, rise up, O God, and inherit all nations. Um, And the idea being you take over 
their responsibilities on the divine council, you basically now become the God of all nations. Wow. And so this is the, the universalization of Jehovah so that the Judahites who are living outside of the land of Israel and others have, have fled to Egypt and there are other places where they're living. Now they can have access to their yeah. deity. They can think of their deity as not someone way off in Israel that we can't access, but somebody who is present wherever they are. And so- Wow. It's it, you, as you can tell, I, I um, am um, I get deep into this, and yeah. but to bring it to the New Testament, in the Greco-Roman period, we have a lot of literature being written of a lot of uh, uh, Jewish individuals who are um, philosophically educated, and they're writing a lot of uh, texts. They're kind of contemplating the heavens, exploring what's going on in the heavens, and so you have. Uh, angels and demons and uh, these hierarchies and roles and responsibilities that are being explored. And so there are a lot of different ideas that are being created. And uh, a lot of it has to do with the fact that the Jewish people are constantly being oppressed or suppressed by larger empires. So a lot of what's going on is how do we respond to being marginalized, being oppressed by these larger empires. So once we get into the first century, there's this expectation that a Messiah, uh, an anointed one, a savior is going to come and basically free them from the grip of the Romans. It's ex the expectation is that there will be a political um, deliverer that will help uh, the nation of Israel regain its independence, its autonomy. Yeah. And so a lot of what we have in the gospels where they're misunderstanding Jesus's role. Mm -hmm. because they are all expecting Jesus to be a, this deliverer, but his message is a different one. It's not political salvation. It is spiritual salvation. And so all four gospels treat that as, as one of the primary conflicts within the gospels is that the uh, disciples, the followers are expecting something different from Jesus than what Jesus is there to, to give them. And so the gospels are a story about how, the mission of Jesus is slowly revealed to them. Wow. Um, for instance, in Mark, blindness is frequently a symbol of their inability to see what Jesus's mission is. Yeah. Yeah. And so you have the, um, there's the one story where Jesus uh, has to heal the blind man in stages. He, um, you know, spits in the mud, makes some mud, rubs it on his eyes. Oh, I can see men look like trees. And this, <laughs> and, and um, a lot of scholars think that this is kind of a, this is a figurative way to refer to the disciples who know that Jesus is something special, but can't see clearly. And it's not until after the resurrection that their eyes are opened, that they wow. now understand, oh, we see what Jesus is. Now. Wow. Yes. Right now, you know, if you look at a lot of the stuff on TikTok uh, and different social media platforms, a lot of the most popular ideas are ideas that scholars came up with over 100 years ago. Mm. It's just really? that now they've filtered down and have become popularized. It's fascinating. And a lot of that is misinformation and a lot of it is harmful because a lot of the stuff that we came up with 100, 200 years ago was intended to basically help us structure power in our favor. Yeah, and absolutely. so a lot of it is still very problematic. So I'd like to help try to make the scholarship as it's happening right now a lot more accessible to people so they can see what kinds of discussions are going on, what kinds of ideas that are very popular have been abandoned for many, many mm -hmm. years so that we can hopefully move past a lot of the harm that's taking yeah, place. Love that. And let me ask you too, just a couple more questions to help contextualize Jesus. Yeah. Um, would the average, would the average Jewish, Jewish person at the time of Jesus have been familiar with this theological history in which the rest of the divine council was sort of demoted <laughs> or were they not thinking in those terms and Jehovah had been sufficiently universalized that that's really where they're yeah, so the, the, I, I'm describing a scholarly reconstruction. We're looking at yeah. uh, material data and the texts and um, arranging them in chronological order and, and trying to, to see what's going on here. Why is this change taking place? But in that context, someone who was within that context would not be seeing that whole trajectory. They would be okay. saying, that, you know, this is the received wisdom. This is how we look at it. This is... Um, the case that makes total mm -hmm. sense and yeah. when jesus said or at, least, at the very least implied very strongly that he was the son of god mm -hmm. who what what were what were jewish people hearing Wh which god would he have been referring to well so when the the gospels were written their audiences were a mixture of jewish people and and um people from outside the jewish faith so greco-roman audiences 
And there are a couple of different things this can refer to. In the Psalms, we have a few different places where the king of Israel, the Davidic king, is referred to either as my son by God directly or as God themselves. So, um, uh, you know, you are my son this day. I have begotten you from the Psalms. We also have in Psalm 45, the psalmist refers to, says, I will direct my words to the king and then refers to the king as God and even says God referring to the king and then your God, that is the God of, of <laughs> God referring to the God of Israel. Yeah. Um, and so the king was, was frequently understood as a son of God. So there's a sense in which there, the gospels are, framing Jesus as this Davidic Messiah, the one who is going to restore what was lost um, at the exile. And there's there's a great book on this called uh, by um, John Collins and Adela Yarborough Collins called King and Messiah as Son of God that discusses how the Son of God was understood in the different cultures that contributed That's to so interesting. Um, yeah. the New Testament. There's also another... Um, facet of the Son of God concept that is more Greco-Roman. There's this inscription called the Prien inscription that is in Greek that was written um, before, uh, I think, the, the end of the first century BCE, and it's about a, uh, Caesar, Augustus. And um, it refers to the birthday of the Son of God and the coming forth of the good news. And so Mark 1 begins... The good news of the, or the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Prien inscription refers to um, Augustus as the Son of God and talks about the good news of His coming into the, the world. And so, there's also a sense in which it is challenging the Greco-Roman notion of the ruler, the emperor, yeah. mm. as Son of God. And saying no, Jesus is oh, the wow. real one. So it's appealing to a couple of different audiences, depending on what text you're looking at and what part of the text. Okay, and just wow. one more. Yeah. It, so when Jesus was praying or crying out, you know, to his father, mm -hmm. who, who who is he speaking to? Well, that that would have been the God of Israel, Jehovah. Jehovah. Yeah. Okay. So which it, a lot of Latter Day Saints are going to be like, wait a second. Yeah, yeah. That's I, I get in trouble for that a lot. <laughs> okay. I, I say on my on my channel, you know, that the Jesus of the New Testament is not the Jehovah of the Old Testament, and then people are like, you're just saying that because you're Mormon. Say, <laughs> that directly contradicts more official Mormon right, right. doctrine, which is that Jesus is <laughs> right. the Jehovah of the Old Testament. But yeah, that that would be the idea that the God of Israel, Adonai, Jehovah. Now, now. There is um, a theory that is pretty common. I, I wouldn't say, well, I don't know I'd say it's the consensus, but it is a very common theory. And I think among critical scholars, it's the consensus. And I think it is probably accurate that in the earliest periods, there was a distinction between El, who would be the high deity, the patriarchal, benevolent uh, ruler over the gods. And then Jehovah was the um, storm deity who was a second tier deity who was a son of El. Okay. So in Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, you have this statement that El Yon, who would be mo the most high in Hebrew, divides up the nations according to the number of the B'nai Elohim, the children of God. And Jehovah's portion was Israel. Jacob was the lot of his inheritance, which pretty strongly suggests that in this very, very early period, Jehovah was seen as the son of El. And yeah. they were very quickly conflated and became the same deity. And so you have Adonai Elohim as a compound name. Um, and so Jesus is addressing this, um, the God of Israel, Adonai, by this time, all of the different divine names, El, Adonai, Elohim, El Yon, all the different names are kind of consolidated within the God of Israel. And Jesus is the son of that mm. deity. Wow. wow. Okay. Before we move on from this, I can you talk about Asher a little bit? Because yeah. we have this beautiful doctrine of a heavenly mother as Latter-day Saints. And, and I think there's this hope that we can connect that somewhere in the in the in the Bible too. So talk about who who is Asherah and is she in this long list and the same as all of these other gods who slowly disappeared or is there something unique about her that we can connect to this heavenly mother idea? So one of the the most important discoveries that has been made that helps us contextualize a lot of a lot of what's going on in the Hebrew Bible and particularly the earlier we get in the Hebrew Bible is uh, a set of texts called the Ugaritic texts. And these were discovered in a little town in uh, Syria, close to the coast, called Ugarit. Uh, a farmer was plowing a field and hit a stone and uncovered um, what was basically a sarcophagus. 
and French archaeologists descended on the on the place and uncovered an entire city. And it was a long lost city that we knew from some other literature called Ugarit. And they had a bunch of texts uh, that had about a thousand different texts, clay tablets written in cuneiform. But rather than having hundreds of different symbols, there were only 30 different symbols. So they knew it was alphabetic. And so using what we knew about other alphabetic texts from the time, they were able to decipher the language. And now we had a bunch of texts that talk about Baal and El and Asherah. And um, there are even parts of these texts that are directly quoted in the Hebrew Bible. So, wow. for instance, in Isaiah 27.1, it talks about Jehovah will fight the, the wriggling serpent, that twisting serpent, Leviathan. And there's a text from about 500 years earlier in Ugaritic that says, Baal has um, destroyed the wriggling serpent, the twisting serpent. And then in Ugaritic, the, the name is Lotan. It's, it's cognate, so it's related. Okay but it um, has a slightly different vocalization. And so we know that that literature is linked with what's going on in the Hebrew Bible. And that helps us kind of very much like using frog DNA to recreate dinosaurs. <laughs> we can use Ugaritic texts to help us try to um, hypothetically fill in gaps in what we know about the Hebrew Bible. And so in the Ugaritic literature, El, the high deity, has a consort, a partner or a wife. Um, named Asherah. And the second tier deities, including Baal, are the uh, children of El and the children of Asherah, the 70 children of Asherah. And so if we go back to Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, where it talks about El Yon dividing up the nations according to the number of the children of God, if you look in Genesis 10 and, and elsewhere, the conventional wisdom is that there are 70 nations on the earth. So Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 is probably referring to the 70 nations yep. and the 70 B'nai Elohim, the 70 children of God. And so if that is a part of early Israelite belief, who is the mother of these um, 70 children of God? And uh, there's not much in the, in the Hebrew Bible that is preserved that refers directly to Asherah in anything other than a very negative way. Um, Asherah is referred to in a very negative light. However, we have discovered um, a lot of female figurines in cultic contexts, so um, sacred spaces where people are worshiping, that some people used to think were Asherah, probably not um, Asherah, but we have some uh, other cultic objects, like uh, there's a, a temple in um, the southern desert uh known as the, the city is known as Arad. And there's a temple in there and it has a holy of holies with a standing stone, which would represent the deity, but it has a large and a small incense altar in the front. And some people, some scholars think that the incense altars represented uh, Jehovah and his consort. And we also have some inscriptions that were discovered that date to around the same time period that refer to Jehovah and his Asherah. Um, and there's even one that has a drawing that shows a very clearly male deity next to a female deity, and they have their arms interlinked. And the inscription that refers to Jehovah and his Asherah is written over top of their heads. So wow. uh, I, I think there's a very good case to make that for the early Israelites, uh, it was perfectly normal to worship uh, the God of Israel alongside their consort Asherah, who would have had her own priesthood as well. and. The problems start around the end of the 8th century BCE, and uh, we have this Assyrian king who comes in to basically rough Judah up because the king Hezekiah does not want to pay the tribute to um, Assyria anymore. So he throws off vassalage. And so the king comes in to um, beat him up to try to return them to vassalage, destroys a bunch of the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is gone, but that area destroys a bunch of the cities in that area and in Judah, is unable to take Jerusalem. And the aftermath of this, so the king goes back home and is killed. And so basically Hezekiah is successful in escaping vassalage. The aftermath is that all of the cult sites and temples in the area are destroyed. And so now it's basically just the temple in Jerusalem. That's the biggest, that's the main temple that's left. So now everybody has to, if they want to worship in a temple, come to Jerusalem. And the kings after Hezekiah are most likely trying to restore a lot of the worship that was going on elsewhere. But then we get to Josiah. 
uh, toward the end of the seventh century BCE. Um, and Josiah realizes, um, according to the reconstruction that I think is probably accurate, that there's a lot of wealth and power and access to resources um, that can be maintained by making sure those other cult sites and those other deities that are worshipped are not worshipped, that everybody continues coming to Jerusalem. To come, yeah. Right. And so the literature that demonizes Asherah, the literature that talks about Jerusalem as the only place you're allowed to worship, the literature that talks about um, the uh, Levitical priesthood as the only legitimate priesthood, all of that literature is dated by scholars to the time of Josiah or later. There aren't any texts wow. that, that demonize Asherah that um, scholars can confidently date to prior to that time period. And so this is another attempt to structure power in the favor of um, the king and his priesthood and, and others who, who support that. And so a lot of the biblical text is later people in power looking back on their history and retelling it in a way that supports their power structures. A lot structures. of biblical texts. A lot of yeah. what we're reading in the Bible is yeah. people who, who won. Yeah. Like, wow, oh, yeah, absolutely. Wow. And and if you look in Samuel Kings and then in Chronicles, they're telling the same stories as well. But if you note the differences between them, you can see the, the different power interests that they have. For instance, Samuel Kings doesn't really talk much about uh, the Levites and the Levites are all over Chronicles. And Samuel Kings talks about Elijah and Elisha. And the prophetic authority is a big deal in Samuel King. It's totally absent from Chronicles. And so they're they're prioritizing different things because they're trying to structure power in favor of their, their different groups. Um, and so Asherah is one of the things that gets um, set aside, uh, starting in Josiah uh, and afterwards. And so that's why the my dissertation supervisor argues that she was edited out of the Bible. And there there are a couple of places where it's possible that the text has been altered um, to erase references to Asherah. And one of them is Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. It talks mm -hmm. about uh, God uh, coming um, from the South. And I think, I don't remember how the KJV has it, but it says mm -hmm. something like a fiery law at his right hand or, or something like that. But that, okay. that word doesn't really fit because it's relying on a, an understanding of this word that was borrowed from Persian in the fifth century. Mm -hmm. And this text is supposed to be from many oh, centuries before. Right. And the word um, could be a corruption of Asherah. So it could be saying Jehovah is coming from the South with That's Asherah actually. at his right hand. Um, oh it's, it's a plausibility. We don't know yeah. for sure. Um, but that's an argument that a lot of scholars wow. make. Are there any other, is, is there anything else that you can point to where we can kind of see traces of where Asher may have been? Like I've heard wisdom, wisdom can be, can, may represent some sort of female deity. So anything, anything else like that that comes to mind? So in the, in the Hebrew Bible, and particularly when we get into the Greco Roman period, there's a lot of personification of the traits of deity. Mm. Um, so God's word, God's name, God's spirit, God's wisdom, these things are personified and turned into uh, personal entities. And so in Hebrew, chokhmah is wisdom, and that is a, is grammatically feminine. And it's the same in, in Greek, Sophia. And that gets personified in the Greco-Roman period. And, and sometimes in Hebrew, like uh, ruach, spirit, is a feminine noun. But in the Hebrew Bible, you'll see them talk about a spirit saying and doing this, but it will use masculine verbs and pronouns. But in the Greco-Roman period, Sophia becomes personalized, but in a, using feminine traits. And so Sophia becomes a female deity. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of influence uh, on the way Greco-Roman period Jewish writers are, are thinking about these things um, because of the influences coming from Greco-Roman authors and philosophers and things like that. Yeah. So you do see some of that uh, in there with, particularly with Sophia. Wow. So interesting. Seriously. Oh my gosh. This, this does get right into um, something that you've talked about quite a bit and other Bible scholars that I've heard uh, Pete Enns among them, mm -hmm. um, that is that the Bible is essentially a, a collection of conflicting perspectives. Yeah. And for a lot of people of faith, that can be difficult to hear. And a lot of people yeah. don't, don't believe that, don't see it that way. Uh, um, but I think it's very helpful to have that perspective. Um, you, let me just quote you here. You say, everyone who says we have to do or believe something because the Bible says so has negotiated away something the Bible says that 
that they don't want to do or believe. Yeah. Um, I, I'm wondering if maybe you could give us, uh, maybe, I mean, you've already given us some examples of that, you know, like these conflicting, these conflict, conflicting perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd be curious if anything uh, particular comes to mind that might resonate for Latter-day Saints. And also, could you talk about um, what we can, like how the Bible and scripture generally remains useful if that if that is the case that yeah. we can't just sort of assume this is all god breathed you yeah. know well the um i think the notion that all the scriptures speak with one unified consistent voice is frequently a product of kind of the intellectual fallout of the enlightenment because mm. we have this idea of rational religion and that everything needs to be consistent and this was um kind of doing battle with the idea of revealed religion that we don't need a rational explanation, it's it's revealed. And in many ways, uh, revealed religion or the proponents of it adopted the methodologies of proponents of rational religion in order to kind of say, no, you're wrong, even according to your own methodologies. And a lot of that back and forth resulted in the notion that all aspects of faith need to be reconcilable with with reason and need to be mm-hmm. consistent and need to and this is where inerrancy becomes a thing because we have to you know we've got to draw this line in the sand and say it has to be inerrant that is that is kind of a um a reaction to the critiques that have arisen uh, as a result of the enlightenment so if you go before that the the main thrust of religion was not are your truth propositions true Mm -hmm. the main thrust of religion was is your love of god genuine that was the main concern yeah and and uh with the reformation you get a lot of the rejection of the more ritualistic materialistic uh approaches to religion that are primarily characterized by the roman catholic church so that's what the reformation was pushing back against and that's where you get this idea that it needs to be rational and it's all internal and um and so it results in the idea that all that matters is are your propositions true yeah and so that and that's something that latter day saints have inherited like it or not that's the way we tend to think about it um but when you look at the biblical text these are uh it's a collection of texts written over around a thousand years give or take a, a couple of centuries by dozens of different authors and dozens of different editors and they're writing for different reasons. Like I said, you've got Samuel King's writing for a set of reasons. You've got Chronicles writing for another set of reasons. And on their own, they can serve those those reasons in the circumstances in which they were written. But if you separate yourself from those circumstances by 2,000 years and then look at them within one frame, now you have to figure out how they agree with each other and you have to make it fit. Mm-hmm. And that's because of our perspective, not because that's how they were written. Mm -hmm. And once you have to do that, you are imposing upon the text assumptions that are not native to the text and that force a completely different interpretation on it. Because one person says A, one person says B, and then you are saying, how do we make A and B the same? Well, it's got to be C. Mm -hmm. And so you're imposing a different, and and that's what I mean when I talk about negotiating with the text, because we want it to be meaningful for us or we want it to be useful for us. And that means as our circumstances change and as our experiences change and as our needs and desires change, we're going to have to change how we read the text and how we interpret it. Um, And a couple of examples of of things that have been negotiated away, and I think I mentioned one of them recently. Um, So you have disagreement between the author of the book of Acts and Paul regarding whether or not Christians should have dietary restrictions imposed upon them. Because Paul is of the opinion that nothing, you know, it doesn't matter what you eat. It's only wrong if, you know, eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols might make somebody who's not so strong a, a Christian might make them waver in their faith or something like that. Then it becomes a problem. But for the most part, Paul doesn't care. But at the end of the Jerusalem Council in the book of Acts, Acts 15, you have uh, James quotes uh, from a part of Amos, and and it's an odd translation of of Amos. But that basically seals the deal, the idea that the gospel is supposed to be for all. And so they all say, great, that that ends that discussion. So basically, we're not going to follow any of the law except for four things. 
you all Christians must stay away from fornication, um, from idolatry, from meat that has been strangled, which is a reference to meat that has been butchered without draining all the blood, and stay away from consuming blood. And this this is all written in letters, and it's sent to all the churches all around Christendom. And let, this letter is even given to Paul and Barnabas to take on their way before they split up and, and do other things. But according to the apostles at the Jerusalem Council, as recorded in Acts 15, Christians are not supposed to eat blood, and Christians are not supposed to eat meat that has been strangled. But then Paul's readings become more prominent, and Paul's opinion becomes um, kind of the de facto rule. And so that idea that you're not supposed to eat blood, for the most part, is just negotiated away. We don't care anymore because uh-huh. we're not in the circumstances where we have people like, oh, did you offer that? You know, you don't go to dinner parties where people are like, right. we we offer this to uh, Zeus. So right, yeah. It's good. Um, so that's not relevant anymore. So we don't care. And, you know, Christians in, uh, in the UK, like, I'm sure there are plenty that like their blood pudding in the morning with their full English. And mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of it. But, uh, but there are, there are Christians all over the world who have no issue with that. And there are some yeah. Christians who try to stick to that. In fact, Jehovah's Witnesses um, try to honor that by abstaining from not just eating blood, but blood transfusions and things like that. So everybody's negotiating with the text in one way or another. And so every time we say, you know, oh, well, the Bible says this, we got we to gotta stick to that. There are other things that they've said, eh, we don't mm-hmm. have to stick to that anymore. Because and it's so contradictory. Like you couldn't do it. You exactly. just, it's impossible. There's, there have been attempts to live all the regulations in the Bible uh, by, by scholars and, and others who've said, I'm going to give this a try and then end up saying it's physically impossible because we've got laws over here that contradict the laws over here. And this says do this, but the other one says you're not allowed to do that. And so, yeah, yeah it's, it just does not work. At some point, you have to make it work, which means centering one thing and marginalizing another. whereas another group is going to center that one thing and marginalize the other so that raises the question how how can an individual or a community make scripture useful for themselves well i think um if we understand the, the text to be inspired then the idea is hopefully that the text is a living instrument that it is something that is intended to be dynamic. It is intended to guide people within their different circumstances. And so that negotiation, I think, is necessary. It's already inescapable. It's already inevitable. Whether we like it or not, we might as well use it to our benefit. And so I would say that for, for folks who want to approach the Bible devotionally, um, figure out ways to make it meaningful and useful. And the only the only reason that I am frequently critical of uh, the way people, um, I'm, I'm critical of folks who say that's not what they're doing, that mm-hmm. they're just doing what the, the text says, because more often than not, they're doing that because they want to, they want to wield the Bible as a rhetorical bludgeon yeah. or in an effort to structure power uh, to um, in favor of one group over and against another. And frequently the other is a marginalized or less yeah. powerful group. And that causes oppression, that causes suffering, that causes people to um, feel devalued, that causes people to take their own lives. Yeah. And so I think that as long as we're not, I think we need to be cr- self-critical about why we're doing it and how we're doing it. And as long as we're not... Um, basically going along with attempts to structure power in favor of one group over and against another, I would say do what makes the Bible more meaningful and more useful to you. Would you be willing to talk about a couple of specific examples? Because it feels like the way that we maybe see this done most often is is against LGBTQ, the community at large, and also women in general. Like yeah. People use the Bible to to justify this subjugation of women. So can you talk about like, how could you, how would you actually respond to someone who's justifying some sort of marginalization with a verse in the Bible? Um, Well, the, one of the first things I I do is, is point out that if you're trying to leverage this one verse over here, (laughs) be aware that there are a lot of other verses that you are rejecting or you are reinterpreting or you are just ignoring. And so I, I think it's helpful to, to get that out all on the table. So people are aware that nobody is doing this just because it's inescapable, that the Bible says it, therefore. Everybody is doing it because it helps them in their identity politics, in their their structuring of power. 
But yeah, we in the in the Hebrew Bible particularly, but also um, in many places in the New Testament, women are marginalized, are are decentered. Um, I've I've said before that they're they're kind of the NPCs of mm. um, uh, of the world back then, and that's because the world was was. Uh, irredeemably patriarchal at the time. And so when we look, for instance, in um, the legislation in Leviticus that is frequently cited when people want to condemn the LGBTQ plus community, if you look at all those laws, every last one of them is addressed to a man. And it's about who the man is not supposed to have sex with. Because sex, and, and this is true also of uh, sexual assault today, it's about power. And back then, the man was the agent in any sexual encounter, and the woman was not an autonomous agent. They were the receptacle. They were the acted upon. And so in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, a bunch of laws all about who a man is not allowed to have sex with. There's only one passage in each that refers to who a woman is not allowed to have sex with, and that's an animal. Because that's the only partner they could possibly have that is lower wow. on the hierarchy of power of domination. And so wow. when we look at that, the way they're structuring power, their understanding of um, social relationships, but also of the nature of sex, it's completely foreign to how we think about it today. Hopefully, yeah, it, right. is, it is utterly alien. And the ideas in those laws in Leviticus 18 and 20 are primarily about preserving the purity of the land. The idea is that if you do these things that kind of cross conceptual boundaries, you generate some kind of metaphysical impurity that stains the land. And in Leviticus 18, it says that the land will, will um, eject you, will mm -hmm. throw you out if you know those impurities are not cleaned up through the proper rituals and things like that. And so that understanding of the nature of the things that are being described as sins is also something that's totally alien today. And the reasons behind why they are imposing these, these rules as well are totally alien to today. And when you go into the New Testament, we have a new set of understandings, uh, the Greco-Roman world. Um, injected early Judaism with a, a lot of philosophical concepts that inform the way they talk about sex. And now um, women are still very much a, a less powerful group. And you see this in Paul. He kind of grows a little bit, not a ton, but a little bit between his earliest literature where he doesn't even address women to his later um, letters where he is talking about women, but is trying to rationalize why it's okay that they're subordinate. Um, and where he talks about uh, the uh, Christ as the head of uh, the man, and but one of the one of the things in the New Testament that we see is this notion that sexual desire is something that has to be kept um, on lockdown because it can result in all kinds of of um, illicit sexual activity and other problems, and this is a product of the Greco-Roman world, this idea that sexual desire is something that is supposed to be um, kept low. So Paul is someone who doesn't like sexual desire at all. Paul is celibate. Paul wants everybody else to be celibate, but recognizes that not everybody can hack it. Not everybody has that spiritual gift. Mm -hmm. And so what he says is it's better to marry than to burn. And burn is a reference to burning with sexual desire. But in 1 Thessalonians, when he talks about people who get married, he tells men, again, men are, are the yeah. agents, possess your vessel in holiness and uh, honor. And so the vessel is the wife, the um, sexual vessel. And he says, not with the passion of desire, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so scholars are reconstructing Paul's sexual ethic think that what he's saying here is sex is only good for keeping down the urges as as Ned Flanders would would say um <laughs> in other words if you can't hack it get married but only have enough sex to keep you from wanting to have more sex it's not about procreation because in Paul's 
view, Jesus is coming back too soon for any of that to matter. Oh, wow. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 7 that the rule for all of his churches is stay in the circumstances in which you were when God called you. If you are married, stay married. If you're unmarried, stay unmarried. It even says if you're a slave, don't seek out your freedom unless, I think he says, if you can, if you can purchase it, then that's fine. But for the most part, Jesus is coming back too quickly. We don't have time for this. So procreation is not even on the map for Paul. So his sexual ethic is totally alien to what we know today. And so when we cherry pick and say, well, I like what Paul says over here about, um, you know, these people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I'm going to use that as this rhetorical bludgeon, but then totally ignore that Paul doesn't want anybody having sex anyway um, and doesn't care about procreation. We are just using what we find useful for our own identity politics. And, wow. and, I, and when we're doing so in order to harm other people, people, that who, people who experience um, so much oppression, so much marginalization, so much hatred, and I've seen it on social media, even within the comment sections of, of my own videos, it's, it's awful. And so you're already cherry picking and picking and choosing, but to do so in order to harm others is um, awful. Can I just ask you then? Yeah. I like that. I love this idea of it's a living book. And so maybe this negotiation is part of the holy work that we do as as religious people. But what do you say to someone who just says the book is broken? Like the book is broken. There's so many contradictions. It's being used as a weapon. Why not just leave it behind and find a different book? Brothers Karmazov or something that is going to just be all good. And there's no question. And we can all be on the same page. There can't be a book that is going to um, be perfect for everybody in every circumstance throughout all time because yeah. everything changes. And so I think and and I think most most folks are comfortable with acknowledging that that ideals change. Um, most Latter-day Saints still like the idea of absolute morality, but it has some fuzzy boundaries. And so, you know, slavery is something that most everybody now agrees. Um, is abhorrent and awful, but it was the fabric of the society back then. And you have you, there's not a single verse of the Bible, old the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament, that suggests that there's anything fundamentally wrong with it. And that's wildly different today. And so um, I think that hopefully most people recognize uh, who are approaching the text devotionally that. If it is going to inform everybody in their own unique circumstances throughout all time, it has to be dynamic. It has to change. It has to be negotiable. And again, the reason a lot of people are uncomfortable with that is because the product of the Enlightenment was this notion that, oh, it has to be consistent. It has Mm -hmm. to be unified. It has to all be perfectly rational. And I don't think that most people who live religious lives do so because they find it perfectly rational. Yeah. I think that most people who live religious lives do so because it makes them happy because they find value in it because they find meaning in it. And that does not always necessarily have to do with whether or not your propositions are true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think if we think more about is your love of God genuine, I think uh, we can find a lot more value and utility in, in the scriptures. Wow. Love that. And there's this practical element to it too, I guess, where it's like there are a billion plus people who are using the Bible as their text. And so it's what we've got. And so we may, we may as well, uh, work with it in as healthy a way as possible. Um, and I know we're, I know we're getting close to the end here, but there are a couple of questions I just can't miss. Yeah. Um, I want to know from your perspective as a, as a scholar, what we miss about, about Jesus in the new Testament, the Jesus of the new Testament, like Mm -hmm. just how, you know, like how revolutionary was Jesus and the things that he, he was teaching? And what do we sort of get wrong about him potentially in our common cultural understanding? There, there's a lot that we get wrong about Jesus. And a lot of it has to do with this, the assumptions and the presuppositions we bring to the text. Um, when we presuppose univocality, the notion that there is a single Jesus of the New Testament because the four different gospel authors are presenting four different Jesuses mm. in order to address specific audiences who have specific needs, who maybe have specific misunderstandings. And so they're each trying to communicate different things to their uh, given audience. For instance, um, we talk about women. Luke is a lot more, Luke's Jesus is a lot more concerned for the marginalized and the oppressed and for women and for others who are on the periphery of society. So Luke's Jesus is going after the one and leaving the, the 99 a lot more emphatically. 
uh, when compared to some of the other Jesuses. We also have uh, John's Jesus is um, can be pretty mean about Judaism. Uh, there's accusations of anti-Semitism in, in John's gospel, and some people think that's because the Johannine community that produced that specific gospel had probably been kicked out of synagogues or something mm -hmm. like that and kind of shaking their fist at um, the people who rejected them. That theory is a little bit outdated, but when we think about what the authors are going through, what they're trying to achieve, I think that will help us to think a lot more productively about um, the Jesus that that they're presenting. And, and hopefully that can help us um, relate to our own concept of Jesus uh, a little better. Love that. Yeah. Are there tools in general this year as we're studying the New Testament, are there tools in general that you would like for people to kind of keep in mind as they study to make this more a more fruitful year and maybe less yeah. problematic than it might be if you approach <laughs> it with this, with this you know, univocality? Yeah, I think um, there was a, a book when I was at BYU, there were a couple of books that came out, one called Jehovah and the World of the Old Testament and another, another called Jesus and the World of the New Testament that were big, um, richly illustrated kind of coffee table books. And those were kind of expensive, but I understand that they're coming out with paperback versions oh. now. They've been out of print um, or hard to get for a while, but they're coming out with paperback versions. And, and the idea is basically to... Um, show images, discuss uh, different aspects of everyday life, of uh, the political world at the time, uh, the different genres of, of texts, and all this to help people get a better understanding for the world around mm. Jesus um, in the New Testament. I think that would be very helpful for Latter-day Saints. Um, Thomas Wayment has a second edition, uh, a revised edition of his translation of the New Testament out, which is wonderful. Um, I even, I have a review article in, uh, the religious educator that I published a while ago talking about Tom's translation of the New Testament for Latter-day Saints looking for an annotated New Testament that is going to contextualize it mm -hmm. for a Latter-day Saint audience. I think that's a wonderful uh, way to go about it. For people who want to dive deep, I usually recommend getting a good introduction to the New Testament. Bart Ehrman, who um, is kind of uh, a persona non grata for a lot of more conservative folks, is a wonderful scholar. He has an introduction to the New Testament that I would highly recommend. And then a book, uh, if and if you're looking for another translation, the New Revised Standard Version is the translation I usually recommend when people mm. say, what's the best translation out there? There's not really a best translation, but I would usually recommend the New Revised Standard Version. And there's an edition called the New Oxford Annotated Bible. It's in a fifth edition right now. And that has wonderful book introductions, has wonderful explanatory notes, and even has thematic essays in the back. Um, there is also a um, Jewish annotated New Testament, same translation, but the um, explanatory notes and the book introductions are provided by Jewish scholars who are situating yeah. the New Testament within the intellectual and literary heritage of Judaism. So I'd recommend that as well. And then the last thing I'll recommend is a book by the doctoral supervisor of my doctoral supervisor that's called A History of the Bible by John Barton. And it's a phenomenal discussion of where the Bible came from, how it came together, how it was canonized, and then how it has been interpreted historically by Jewish communities as well as Christian communities. So some of the history of interpretation. And for folks who want to know um, how to approach uh, something like the New Testament from a more scholarly, um, critical perspective, if you're comfortable with the word critical, I think that book is a wonderful introduction. Wow. And are you saying, I mean, it sounds like maybe I, that was the most incredible list, but but are you, do you feel like when you approach it more academically that that just gives you more clarity to be able to recognize the ways that you're negotiating maybe without even realizing it? Or like what 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 is the, what's the use of a of a devotional, like someone who's engaging with the Bible devotionally, mm -hmm. taking kind of this new approach to understand it? The The primary use, I think, is that it makes the Bible more foreign to us and it makes it mm -hmm. uncomfortable. And... If we think of the scriptures as something where we already know what every last word means because we have it written in there right. and, and you know there are no surprises, it's never going to change us. But if we think of engaging with the scriptures as an attempt to learn doctrine that changes behavior, that's going to be a lot more effective if you are made uncomfortable by it, if you are forced to grapple with problems and contradictions and things you didn't know. And um, 
So I, I think we try to, we should hopefully make the scriptures more difficult rather than oh. easier. Oh, yeah. Because I, I, I think that um, provides a lot more grist for the mill of, um, of enduring to the end. And Love so, that. oh my gosh, that's yeah, beautiful. I, wow. Well, this has been an absolutely incredible, Dan. And maybe if I can ask you a sign off question, we spent yeah. a lot of time in the Bible. One Book of Mormon question. The first time we actually came across your work was through the scholarship you had done on the phrase in 2 Nephi 25, 23, mm -hmm. uh, it is by grace that we're saved after all we can do. Yeah. Can you talk about what you have discovered there and why it might matter for Latter-day Saints? Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of times we seek to understand the Book of Mormon by trying to situate it within the ancient world. Yeah. But the language that the Book of Mormon is written in, wherever you think that came from, is 19th century English. Now it is it is you know doing a little archaizing. It's um, sounding a little older, but it is very much 19th century English. And so the best way that we can understand what the Book of Mormon is saying, what it means, is by getting to know 19th century English and its usage. And so with this phrase, after all we can do. I went and looked at all the occurrences of this phrase I could find from uh, about, I forget, 1715 up to about 1840. So over a century of usage, and it occurs a bunch. And what I found is that I, there were no occurrences of after all we, she, he, they, it can do that had the sense of subsequent to doing all we can do. It always meant despite all we can do. And... I even found a number of occurrences of the phrase within theological discussions and specifically discussions about grace. And it was always the same, saved by grace after all we can do. And the idea there being despite all we can do. And it's related to um, a phrase in, in Luke where it talks about being unprofitable servants. And we have that in the book of Mosiah as well. If we do every last thing that we're told to do, we would be unprofitable servants still. And so if... Mosiah is saying the same thing as second Nephi. Surely it's not that we have to do all that we can do first, because even if we did all that we can do, that's not enough. And so um, I argued in this paper that was published in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies in 2020, that uh, the usage from the time period from a century before and um, a decade after the publication of the Book of Mormon, that phrase always would have been understood to mean despite all we can do and understanding second Nephi 25, 23, that way much better fits the conceptualization of grace that we find elsewhere in the book of Mormon. And so I think it was, um, Latter-day Saints renegotiated that text to make it more useful as a way to say, you've got to do everything that you can. Um, you, you know, it's, it's a way to deny the idea of cheap grace. It's a way to say, you have to go further. You have to do everything. But as, um, then president Uchtdorf said in conference several years ago, who among us has done all that we can do? None of us. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so nobody would qualify for grace according to that reading. And so I think there are a lot of ways that, um, folks in the church, try to emphasize the importance of things using rhetoric that gets them into trouble yeah. and that they don't think about the implications of this rhetoric. Uh, and if people use it enough, it gets so deeply ingrained, it gets used all over. And then we see a lot of the fallout. And I wasn't raised in the church, but I have heard from a number of people who were raised with this idea of the licked cupcake or the chewed gum <laughs> yeah, or right. things like that. So we have to be, I think we have to be a lot more careful with the rhetoric that we generate to try to emphasize to people the importance of uh, of the principles that we're teaching. And that's a complex thing. That's a difficult thing to do, but I think yeah. it's so important. And would you say that 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 the litmus test is, is this making me feel genuine love for God? Like, is that is that kind of your overarching principle that you're looking for as you as you read and interpret the Bible devotionally? Um, I, I think... I think that's a that's one way to put it. I would I would say, am I trying to win an argument? Am I trying mm -hmm. to influence another person's agency? Am I trying to um, to make a connection with somebody else to grow closer to them? Am I trying to structure power in my favor? I think we would have um, 
we had a, we would have a lot fewer issues if we were more conscious of that as we're developing yeah. um you know the things that we're going to say to our children to our families to our congregation um and yeah result in hopefully happier people a lot more people who are willing to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those who stand in need of comfort Wow, thank you so much. That's this is really incredible. This has been amazing, Dan. Thank yeah. you so much for coming on. I appreciate it very much. All right, thanks so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Dan McClellan. If Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. We read all of the reviews and it really helps us to get the word out about Faith Matters. And we appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening. Remember, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.